Shalom, shalom, Hevra. Great to see you all. Rev. Darren, great to see you. Thanks for being here with us. And um, this is really great. This is really great to see you all. Okay, there's more music coming on. So I don't know who's in control of that. <laughs> I'll stop it. Okay. Well, you, you want more music? <laughs> no, I want more of you. Okay, no, more of you, more of you. Thank you. So this is, this is a delight for lots of reasons. One, because my last, my last Zoom, which ended two minutes ago, was about the Uyghur genocide, and that's kind of heavy. And God is also heavy, but um, with Darren, it'll be lighter. So, <laughs> um, so thank you all for being here. And uh, Rabbi Darren Kleinberg doesn't need an introduction to this Hevra, to our Valley Beat Midrash friends, but actually some of you arrived here after Darren was uh, arrived, uh, left, excuse me. And um, some of you may have forgotten some of his, uh, his bio. So here's the, here's the brief bio to our friend here. Rabbi Darren Kleinberg is CEO at Hamakom, The Place. Darren was born and raised in London, England, has lived in Israel and Canada, and has now lived and worked in the Bay Area since 2013 a year that marked a transition for me too. He is an ordained rabbi, holds a PhD in religious studies, and is the author of Hybrid Judaism, Irving Greenberg, Encounter and the Changing Nature of American Jewish Identity. Darren has been pioneering Jewish educational experiences for 25 years, emphasizing the importance of making Jewish wisdom accessible to all. Career highlights include designing, launching, and leading the first ever birthright trips, writing a four-year high school Jewish Studies Curriculum, founding and leading Valley Beit Midrash in Phoenix, Arizona, and spearheading the, tra and the transformation of Kahila Jewish High School in Palo Alto into a thriving independent Jewish high school. Darren lives in Palo Alto with his wife and their two daughters. He's been playing the guitar daily for 25 years and loves hearing new music every week on his Spotify Discover weekly playlist. Um, as you have uh, all certainly enjoyed, as have I, learning with Darren, he is someone who continues to evolve in his thinking, in his practicing, um, and in his ideologies uh, or post-ideologies. And so um, you never know quite what you'll get with Rabbi Dr. Darren Kleinberg, and that's part of the exciting thing is that the learning comes alive. So I'm grateful for you, for your friendship and your colleague, uh, being a colleague and for this opportunity to learn with you today. Friends, the format, we're gonna do about 25, 30, 35 minutes of a, a little bit of a frontal presentation. You're welcome to share on the side if you want in the chat. And then we will open up the floor even off of mute because we trust this group uh, to ask some questions and engage conversation a little bit. And we're gonna end hard stop at two o'clock. So with that, Darren, it's all yours. Thank you. Thanks, thanks, Shmuley. Um, all right, I gotta keep that in mind. Hard stop at two o'clock, okay. Um, <laughs> is someone else gonna use this Zoom channel at two o'clock? It's not that hard of a stop. We just in general <laughs> have hard stops to our programs. <laughs> I'll try not to run too long, but I'll keep that in mind. Um, it's so great to be here. It is, uh, it is a special, I'm just clicking through the screen and just seeing all these faces of the people that I love and, and, and have, uh, have known for so long now. It really is a joy to see you all. Uh, if, you, if your name is up and you're not on screen, I uh, encourage you to consider showing your face. It'd be nice to see you. Hi, Judy. <laughs> um, so it's like a double, it's a double pleasure because... Uh, it's, it's just fantastic to see you all. And then it's nice to be invited back, you know, uh, 
it's like, I guess when your kids leave the house and they invite you over for dinner, you feel like you, you're still wanted. So that's nice. It's nice to be invited back to Valley Beit Midrash. I was just talking to someone, I was even talking to my board yesterday at Hamakam, and I told them that when they get tired of me, they have to make sure they hire Shmuley because what he has been able to do at Valley Beit Midrash uh, these last seven years is beyond anything I could have imagined or even would be capable of achieving. So I'm so, uh, I'm so uh, taken by, by the work that he's doing at Valley Beit Midrash. And uh, feel fortunate to be connected still in, in some small way. Um, so I was thinking maybe first it would be interesting for me and maybe for you as well if people want to just put maybe you want to put your name and your location in the chat box so we could just get a sense of who's here and where you are uh, that would be cool I know even some of the people I know from my Phoenix days have moved elsewhere and maybe others can just take a look and just get a feel for the, the miracle of this mode of communication. Thanks. And then um, Vernon Meyer, it's nice, nice to see your name. I don't know if I've seen your face just yet, Vernon. <laughs> Give me a wave. Oh, there you are. <laughs> ah, it's really nice to see you. It's really nice to see everybody else, but I, I haven't seen Vernon in a long, long time. So <laughs> um, that's nice to see all these names and places. And then, you know, in the opening, I'm going to kind of frame it. But in the opening, if, if you showed up with a question or the title, you know, raised something for you, feel free to, to put it into the uh, into the chat box also. Maybe we'll. Maybe we'll help it, help the conversation along. Maybe we'll get to it uh, later on. All right. Thanks, everybody, for doing that. Ah, okay. So, yes, uh, Jennifer, you should, everyone should be able to see my uh, orange slide. Give me a thumbs up if you can see the slide that says, can we talk about, yes, okay, good. If you want to see other people's faces, uh, you, you, there's a way to see people on the, on the side column of the screen, but you'll have to figure that out. I'm not, I'm not able to, to walk you through the steps. Um, so, so this is the topic. You know, Shmuley was kind enough to reach out to me. I don't know how long ago it was, a month or six weeks, and asked if I wanted to teach something. And I said, sure. And he said, what? And I said, I don't, there's really not really anything I and move to talk about, you know, I, I generally, uh, I don't walk around with a list of things that I want to talk about. Um, and uh, we started bouncing ideas around and he made some suggestions based on my, my bio and none of those seemed that interesting. And uh, I said to him, well, you know, the only thing I really want to talk about these days is God. And he said, well, let's do that. And I immediately, the question arose in my mind, can we do it? And so that's how we got to this title. Can we talk about God? Is, it, is there a conversation to be had? Um, and so what I want to do in this frontal portion is spend most of our time just parsing the question. Can we talk about God? I want to walk through each word, each, uh, each part of that question to, to set up the conversation. We will end with uh, a piece from Franz Rosenzweig and Arthur Green. 
And, uh, and at that point, uh, we'll open it up and see, see what people have to say in response. Um, so that's the game plan. First, I want to set an intention. But before that, I just want to invite everybody to take a moment and arrive. I, I don't know about you, but I find that just because my body is somewhere doesn't mean the rest of me is present. And so, uh, you know, I mean, you, you could certainly, you can be checking your phone and having your notifications on and doing other things. That's fine. Uh, but, but, uh, but you'll be missing half the experience if you do that. So if you want to try to bring yourself right here, like this is a vacation for the next hour. You don't have to do anything, right? There's, there's nothing to fix. There's no tasks you have to complete, no projects you have to get done. You just get to, just get to be here and have this experience and see what happens. Uh, Sounds like Shabbos. Yes, that's right. That's right. Thank you. It does sound like Shabbos. And you know, if we're doing it right, it should always feel like Shabbos. So that'll be my test. If at some point in the next hour you feel like it's Shabbos, then, uh, then we passed. Um, all right. So now that we're here, now that we're here, so I've been thinking about this, and, and this is my intention for the next 50 minutes now, I guess. And it's an intention I invite you to consider. You know, I, I work for a, a new organization. This is my fifth week on the job, and it's a very, um, uh, it's a very exciting role, and it's also a somewhat intimidating uh, role because I'm the CEO of an organization called Hamakom, and it, you may know that the word Hamakom is one of uh, one of God's names in the Jewish tradition, and. Uh, and so I approach the work with great trepidation. You know, what does it mean to be leading an organization whose name is God? I mean, this is, a, this is not a small thing. Uh, it's not the name I gave the organization. It's the name that I inherited. Um, but it informs my approach each day when I wake up. You know, how am I going to do this work? So similarly for today, can we talk about God? I want to I invite everybody into that feeling of trepidation with the, the first half of the fourth of the Ten Commandments. Right, Do not bear the name, uh, the name of God, Yud uh, your God. Shav, Lashav could be translated as falsely or vainly, or in an empty way. Um, so my intention is, although some of you who've known me for some time know I can be a sucker for a cheesy joke or maybe even in an in, inappropriate one every now and then, um, I'm going to try to keep my, my presence right here and, and, and be mindful um, of, of the topic that we're talking about, try to, try to approach it with the appropriate level of seriousness. And so I just invite you all to consider the same. Okay, so let's, uh, let's talk about the question. Can we talk about God? All right, let's break it down. So, uh, first, can we, right? That's an interesting, interesting two words, can we? If you're thinking about it now, you may notice that there are multiple ways of understanding those two words. I'm going to offer three. Um, the first one, can, the first meaning of can we I'm going to offer is, is it permitted? Are we allowed? Are we allowed? Now, I'm not asking this question, is it permitted in a legal sense or in the sense of 
human freedom. Of course, we can. We can, we can do anything we want. Uh, even if it's not allowed, we can usually do those things. It's called crime, right? You're not allowed to speed, but, you know, some people may drive above the speed limits. I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean it in that sense. I don't mean um, are we allowed legally. I mean, is it permitted ethically? Um, can we talk about God on an ethical level? And let me explain what I mean. This is a, this is a line from an article by Admiel Kosman. I don't know if people know that name. Admiel Kosman is a professor at the University of Potsdam and also the head of the Abraham Geiger Reform Rabbinical School in Germany. Um, he's an extraordinary academic. And he wrote a piece in Haaretz newspaper in 2009. You can see the title at the bottom, Treading Towards Sanctity, Musings and Meditations on close to a century's worth of discussions occasioned by Van Gogh's series of paintings of worn shoes. Um, I've never read anything quite like this article. Uh, I encourage you to take a look if you're interested. Quite extraordinary. I don't know if people are familiar with the Van Gogh's paintings of shoes. If you're not, check them out after the class. I think you'll find them interesting. Kosman writes that Derrida, Jacques Derrida, French, uh, you know, uh, postmodern uh, philosopher, Jacques Derrida, for a moment, identifies the frivolity of the Heideggerian discussion. Heidegger, the philosopher, gave a lecture about Van Gogh's shoes and the meaning of art. So Derrida, for a moment, identifies the frivolity of the Heideggerian discussion, which engages in idle talk about Van Gogh's shoe paintings. While a bit later, the shoes of the Holocaust victims pile up. In February 1943, for example, Himmler received a report of 22,000 children's shoes collected at Birkenau. Right? This is the question of whether it's permitted ethically. Right? Can we get up and have highfalutin conversations about Van Gogh's artwork, especially when it is artwork that is, is connected to, to such tragedy? Right? Or similarly, as, as Shmuley opened, right? Shmuley said the last Zoom he was on was a conversation about the Uyghurs. I assume that people are aware of the, the great human tragedy taking place in China. Um, that should be something that certainly Jews of all people should be sensitive to and engaged in. You know, uh, is it even permissible ethically when we know that, for example, the Uyghurs are experiencing the kind of persecution they're experiencing to then engage in conversations about theology. Right? This, this is the question. Um, I, I, don't, I don't have an answer. I want to pose the question, but I'll share one, one response to this question from the you know, great theologian Yitz Greenberg. Um, people know I, I have a connection to, to his work. Um, in, in Yitz's maybe most important theological statement about the Holocaust, Cloud of Smoke, Pillar of Fire, which was a paper that was presented in 1974. He said that no statement, theological or otherwise, should be made that would not be credible in the presence of burning children. Right? This is a reference to the one and a half million children who were murdered during the Holocaust. And, uh, and it's very clear, you know, if we're going to address the question of the ethical permissibility of abstract conversations in the presence of tragedy. At the very least, uh, those statements have to pass the test of credibility in the presence of those tragedies. So that's the first 
possible meaning of can we? Is it in fact permissible? Second meaning of can we is, is it possible? Is it even possible? Is there anything that can be said about God? Uh, and here I could cite, I mean, an endless number of sources. Uh, I just picked one uh, from the book of Job. Uh, people familiarize him with the book of Job. It's the great biblical statement, uh, Hebrew Bible, the great biblical statement on evil in the world. Job is, a, is an individual who is married with children and tragedy befalls. His, his wife dies, his children die. He's, you know, struck down with all manner of, uh, of challenges. And the, the book of Job is, is his exploration um, of the source of suffering. And towards the end of the book, there's this two, two and a half chapters, extraordinary chapters, where, where God responds to Job's query and says, among other things, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Speak if you have understanding, which is essentially to say, what do you know, you small person? You know, when we look at the stars and the planets and, you know, we just, we just look up at the sky. Um, we realize our smallness and the impossibility of us being able to, to say anything uh, of meaning. And so that's the second question. Is it even possible from our vantage point? Is it even possible to say anything about or to talk about God? Again, I'm not offering an answer. I'm posing the question. The third meaning of can we is an invitation I don't know if it's permitted or not. I don't know if it's possible or not, but I invite you to join me nonetheless. Can we? Let's try. Let's try and see what happens. So that's the beginning of the question. Next word in the question, talk. Can we talk about God? Right? So here I, uh, I love this quote. It's quoted in Aldous Huxley's The Perennial Philosophy. Um, which is a compendium of wisdom literature from uh, religions and wisdom traditions all around the world. Um, and he quotes here, Dayo Kakushi is a 12th century Buddhist scholar who wrote, wishing to entice the blind, the Buddha playfully let words escape from his golden mouth. Heaven and earth are filled ever since with entangling briars. Right? This is the problem with talking, uh, is that when we try to reduce that which cannot be reduced into language, we end up creating more problems than we resolve. Right? Um, so that's another question, is, is that the, the medium of speech, is it an effective vehicle to have this conversation? About, this is finally, we get some help here. The word about is, is quite helpful. Here, here are the various definitions of about in the Merriam-Webster's dictionary. About means reasonably close to, almost, on the verge of, on all sides, around, in rotation, around the outside, in different directions, in the vicinity, right? So it may well be that we can't talk of God, but th that we can talk about God, right? 
we can kind of, we can get close, we can point in the direction, we can suggest. Um, and if that's the case, then we, we start to have a, an answer to the question of whether it's permitted or whether it's possible, right? Yeah, it might be, but only if we are honest with ourselves about, about the, how close we can come to talking about, about that which is at the center. Okay, so, so these, are the, these are the considerations that I you know, went through in, in the weeks coming up to today in terms of thinking about how we would engage this topic. You know. And then, of course, there's one more word, and that's the word God. So here I want to I want to move to the work of Franz Rosenzweig to help us. Um, I don't know if people are familiar with Franz Rosenzweig. I have become especially interested in his work because the organization I now lead, which is called Hamakom, was previously called Lairhouse Judaica. It had that name for 44 years. It's had the name Hamakom for two years. And Lairhouse Judaica was founded uh, explicitly um, in, in recognition of the Freier Judicia Lehrhaus that existed in Frankfurt, Germany in the 1920s. Uh, Franz Rosenzweig lived in Frankfurt and he established what is generally considered to be the first adult education program uh, in Jewish history. Um, and he established it in 1920 and it was called the Free House of Jewish Learning the Friar Judicia Lairhouse, the Free House of Jewish Learning. And, uh, you know, it had a pretty good faculty. You know, Martin Buber was on the faculty. Abraham Joshua Heschel was on the faculty. I mean, you know, some, some good folks, you know, they knew a few things. Um, but Rosenzweig was an extraordinary individual. He lived a short life, as you can see. Um, and in the, in the last years of his life, he, had, uh, he was diagnosed with ALS. And here you can see on the right, there's a picture of him in his chair being propped up uh, with ALS. Um, but in his short life, he, he produced an extraordinary amount of, uh, of uh, Jewish theology, mysticism, Jewish philosophy, and, and was, a, was a really extraordinary institution builder. In 1921, his most famous book was published, The Star of Redemption. Um, I don't know if anyone on this call has made it from beginning to end of that book. I certainly haven't succeeded. I've tried to pick it up more times than I can count. Uh, it's, a, it's, 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 it's quite a challenge. Um, but it's his great work of, uh, of Jewish philosophy. And you see here in the picture on the right, he's in the, he's in the army fighting in the, in the First World War for the, for the German army. And much of the Star of Redemption was written in tiny handwriting on postcards that he sent home from the front. He like right, and then he got back, and then he put it together and wrote his book. Extraordinary individual, extraordinary individual. So what I'm going to show you next is a few excerpts from a letter that he wrote in 1923. Uh, after he, had, in 1924 actually, 1924. He it was after he left the Lair House due to his health, declining health, um, and he wrote to the leaders of the organization, including uh, a person named Nachum Glatzer. You may know the name Nachum Glatzer. He's the person that really brought Rosenzweig to the English-speaking world, translated his works, and wrote books about him. And so this is his letter to them um, 
about whether or how we can talk about God. Rosenzweig writes, in my thinking about this, another differentiation occurred to me. The differentiation between what can be stated about God and what can be experienced about God. What can be stated objectively is only the very general formula, God exists. Experience, however, goes much further. What we can state or even prove about God is related to our possible experience in the same way that the empty announcement that two persons have married or the showing of the marriage certificate is related to the daily and hourly reality of this marriage. I, I see some of the folks maybe who are married nodding their heads. Yeah, saying I'm married tells you almost nothing about the nature of the thing that is occurring that we call marriage. Yes? The reality cannot be communicated to a third person. It is no one's concern, and yet it is the only thing that counts. And the objective statement of the fact of marriage would be meaningless without this most private, incommunicable reality. Right? The, fact, the statement of the fact of marriage would be meaningless without this most private, incommunicable reality. Think of a 12-year-old child saying to you they were married. Right? and their inability to understand what, what that could even possibly mean. And so even the bare fact of marriage does not become real, save where it leaves the sphere of what can be objectively stated and enters the secret pale of the festive days and anniversaries in private life. Last, last quote from, from Rosenzweig. It is exactly the same with a person, with what a person experiences about God. It is incommunicable, and one who speaks of it makes themselves ridiculous. It's like, like Lao Tzu said, you know, one who knows doesn't speak, one who speaks doesn't know. Modesty must veil this aloneness together. Right? And I see Debbie's face, and I'm reminding you of that verse, right? Go humbly with your God, modesty. That was, that was her line in her bat mitzvah speech. That's why I'm saying it. <laughs> modesty must veil this aloneness together. Yet everyone knows that though unutterable, it is not a self-delusion. Though unutterable, it is not a self-delusion. I was watching last night with my, my oldest daughter, Layla. Some of you remember Layla. She would hide between my legs at the Bema at Kidma <laughs> on 7th Avenue, 7th Street in, in Phoenix. We were watching Contact last night. Some of you probably saw that movie, Contact. Um, and there's this like great scene where, it's a great and terrible scene where the main character wants to go on this, this journey to another planet to meet the aliens. And she's being uh, interviewed by some congressional panel. and. Uh, the religious guy, of course, the religious guy ends up being the guy that screws it all up, of course, right? The religious guy who knows that she doesn't really believe in God asks her on the record whether she believes in God, basically knowing that he's going to deep six her candidacy for going to the other planet, right? 
That's, that's the problem with religious people. They're a little too zealous. But uh, so, um, so after the, after the congressional you know, uh, interview, after she doesn't say she's an atheist, but she dances around the question, she meets this guy and she says, like, why did you do it? And he said, because 95% of the people living on the earth believe in a God. It can't be that they're all crazy, right? It can't be that they're all crazy. And so you have to at least, you have to at least acknowledge that, that, that that's there. So that, when I was watching now, I was thinking of this line. Everyone knows that though unutterable, it is not a self-delusion. Those of us, and I'm assuming this applies to everyone on this call, those of us who have had an encounter with the mystery, <laughs> We know, we know the difference between being drunk or stoned and having a mystical encounter. I mean, we know the difference, right? I mean, I don't, I've heard, someone told me once, that's it, okay. Here too, here too, it is the person's own experience, utterly inexpressible. That is the fulfillment and realization of utterable truth. So you see, what Rosenzweig does here is, he, he shows us the key, right? The key is your own experience, right? Which means, by the way, if you're in touch with your own experience, you can be in a state of unio mystica, of divine encounter from moment to moment to moment to moment because it's just what's happening, right? It's just what's happening. It's this, this, you know, as the psalmist says, bezot anibateach, in this I have confidence. You know, I trust. I trust that, there's more than meets the eye, and yet I'm able to somehow interact with that mystery. All that is needed, Rosenzweig concludes, is to undergo the experience. So before I go to the last slide, let's just take a couple of moments, and let's just allow ourselves to undergo the experience. To just be with our experience in this moment, the sound of my voice, the feeling beneath your feet, the chair against the back of your legs, your chest rising and lowering with your breath. If your eyes are open, the images in your peripheral vision, if your eyes are closed, whatever those things are that are moving around on the back of your eyelids, just this. Arthur Green writes, in conclusion, I consider the sacred to be the most important and meaningful dimension of human life. The sacred 
refers to an inward mysterious sense of awesome presence, a reality deeper than the kind we ordinarily experience. Life bears within it the possibility of inner transcendence. The moments when we glimpse it are so rare and powerful that they call upon us to transform the rest of our lives in their wake. This is the answer to the question, is it permitted? Yes, if it transforms you. In fact, if you are open to the possibility of transformation, not only is it permitted, but in fact it is required. Thanks, everybody. Okay, friends. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Reb Darren. We're going to open up the floor for some uh, questions. Um, questions, sharing. Uh, actually, given the size of the group, better not to share much, but better to kind of ask some questions. You're also welcome to do that in the chat mode if you'd prefer over there. So um, don't forget to unmute yourself. <laughs> are they able to unmute themselves? I assume they are. The silence is fine. The silence <laughs> is fine. When someone's ready to speak, they'll speak. Great. So Vernon wrote. Okay. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Debbie. Uh, oh. I waited and nobody else was talking. So, okay. I have felt for years through all of the classes that we have together. And I recognize so many faces here, people who we've studied together back in the day um, with Darren and, and in other places where we talk about God but especially here in this context, whenever we learn together, I feel God. I have the God experience when we are all together knowing that minds are open and hearts are full and open. Um, and even if we're all not talking together, I know we're sharing the God experience. Thanks. Thanks. Rep. Darren, there's some, there's some questions on the side. You feel free yeah. to ask. Yeah. So Vernon wrote, my language about that experience, it can only be in metaphors and symbols. Vernon, do you want to say a little more about that? I'd like to hear your voice too. Sorry about the picture. I'm new to Zoom, so it was my attempt to put something behind me rather than uh, blank wall. So uh, I can't get it off. I don't know how to get it off. I'm, I'm happy even to just see half of your face, Vernon. <laughs> um, I guess it's, it's the, the, we can talk in concepts about God, but that isn't really describing the experience. 
So I think of, I, I think of uh, let's say, a God experience, like standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon. Uh, it's not so much the canyon that's the experience of God, it's the sense of awe and wonder. And those words, awe and wonder, um, attempt to come to that experience, uh, attempt to, but it, it instills a feeling inside. So, so if I say God is all-powerful or all-knowing or, or uh, you know, whatever, those are words that, that you know, aren't quite the same as words like awe and wonder, because one is head, head words, the other is uh, deep inside the person in the experience. Uh, of it. Uh, I think of in our, our uh, readings, we just had the story of Elijah and, you know, it wasn't in the wind, it wasn't in here, but it was in the tiny whispering that Elijah came to know uh, that God was present. So that whispering um, is not the words, but it's just the, you know, so, so it's, it's metaphoric and symbolic rather than conceptual. Yeah, I, I accept that. I uh, have nothing, nothing to add to that comment. I just say when you talked about the Grand Canyon, what it brought to mind was, uh, you know, Abraham Maslow. People are, were very familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. He also had this other idea uh, about language you may be familiar with. Also, peak experiences, peak yeah. experiences. Um, I. Uh, some, I, think of, I think of going to the Grand Canyon or similar types of experiences as being in the category of peak experiences. It's, it's so vast, extraordinary, overpowering, right? And but the, the challenge with peak experiences, and this, this was given, I think, language effectively by, by Ram Dass, the challenge with peak experiences is that you come back down the mountain, right? Like you get to, you come back down. And so I, I think what, I'll, I'll come to you in a minute, Virginie. I think, uh, I think that going to the Grand Canyon is, uh, I'm an advocate, I'm not against going to the Grand Canyon. I think it's a wonderful thing to do, one should do it. And at the same time, it might create um, a full sense of what it takes to have the encounter, you see? Because now, now for, for a lot of folks who are just like, rolling through, you know, the, just the daily struggle of life, which is like most of us, right? Sometimes we need to go to the Grand Canyon to remind us that, oh, there's this other thing, you know, this other type of experience. But I think that the work to be done is, now to go back to Maslow and Ramdas, you know, what they talked about was instead of peak experiences, what we actually want are plateau experiences, right? So we, we like, we, we make a, we jump a step function and then we kind of stay there. And then if we're fortunate, we, we jump another step function. If, you know, we keep on, we, as Sander and I often say to each other, you know, we're, we're ultimately we're always trying to ascend the mountain, right? We're trying to get up the mountain. But at each base camp, we want to be able to stay at that base camp and not, and not fall back down. I think to do that, I'm not sure, but I think to do that, we have to find the possibility of what we would call peak experiences in our mundane lives, Right? So let me, let, me, let me just, I'll say one more thing and then and I'm gonna to go to Virginie. So one of the ways, like one of the, uh, and uh, Judy Gottschalk, I'm thinking of you now, one of the mental models that I use, that's a phrase I learned from Judy, mental models. Um, one of the mental models I used 
to, to try to hold on to the awareness in, in the moment to moment. And, you know, when I'm standing in line at the grocery store, right. Or washing my hands or, you know, whatever it is, is the simple teaching in, in the Jewish tradition, but also in every wisdom tradition, uh, that, that each moment is unique and being, and being created anew. Right. Um, you know, in, uh, I think I may have talked about this in, a, in another Zoom down in Phoenix, maybe at Temple High, you know, the, the magic of abstract art, when you see a piece of abstract art, is you have no prior images that act as filters between you and the piece of art, because it's not like anything else. It's not like, you know, if you look at a Rembrandt, a painting of a boy, you have all these other images of boys stored in your memory banks, right? So when you see the Rembrandt, you're not really seeing the Rembrandt. You're seeing the image of the boy through the filter of all of your stored images of the boy. Now you can't, you know, you can see the, the child as it is. They say that's what Van Gogh, you know, did with his work. He painted things as they were, but it's hard for most of us. But when you see a piece of abstract art, you have no prior images to filter the experience. And so you see it as it is. And if you're, if you're fortunate and you can be attentive to your experience, you'll notice that the, the encounter with the abstract art generates something inside of you, right? That, that's the takeaway of abstract art. It's like, oh, it did this thing, right? It, it, it brought this idea up in my mind or it produced a sensation in my body or whatever it is, right? Okay. So if you just take a moment, just like really like give me your attention as best you can and just consider this. Each passing conscious moment is a piece of abstract art because it's unique, right? The, the subatomic particles that this is all grounded upon, you know, have never been in this particular formation before, right? The, as I'm looking at the screen, right? The position of people's heads or the smiles on their faces or the whatever's moving around in the background, right? The particular constellation of images that I'm looking at is unique, is unique. It's, it's never been this way before and it'll never be that way again. And so in that realization, we can have that experience of openness. We can have that experience of, of I've never seen this before. What we, we might say, um, the experience of curiosity, that this is new, right? The, the liturgy says, right? God recreates with goodness each day in perpetuity, right? And of course, a day doesn't mean a day. A day means a moment, right? It's, it's constantly, the thing we're in is constantly being recreated and changes from moment to moment. And if we can hold on to that recollection, Vernon, you talked about awe and wonder. Well then, right, when you see something you've never seen before, you have a sense of awe and wonder. So guess what? Everything you see is something you've never seen before. You just, so the only thing you have to do is remember that. Right? What's the line from, the, from Suzuki? Like, you know, the most important thing to remember is to remember. That's it, right? Or the Jewish way of saying it, Zachor. Right. Okay. Uh, Virginie. I, um, I put up a little comment that Debbie commented on, and that is it's so hard to describe the experience 
Um, but I, as I was thinking, I, I, as a therapist, I have to use language to help me validate the other person's experience. And um, as Vernon said about using metaphor and using, uh, uh, you know, ideas, um, it, it helps validate another's experience, but the experience of God is so beyond that, beyond our, our own experiences. Um, I think I just talked myself into a circle there. <laughs> That's good. That, that, mean, that means we're about, you know, we're doing about. We're about. We're about. Right. That's right. That's right. As, as, as you approach the center, you, you kind of end up like moving orthogonally. Yeah, that, that's, that's a good sign that we're getting close. Um, Darren, can I jump in? Yes, yeah, Shmuley, yes. So, Javier, it's, uh, it's very thoughtful, and I'm enjoying this very much. Um, one, of, uh, one of my many questions, but, I'll, but I'll, I'll step back after this one for others, is if we talk about God in liberal American Jewish life, by far there is one most dominant theme, and that is not about prayer, it's not about language or conversation, it's not about theology, it is about the, the ethical concept of Selim Elohim. Humans are created in the image of God. That's the way liberal American Jews talk about God. And thus, we have an ethical obligation to other human beings because in a post-Shoah world, we understand in a Levinas, Buber fashion that we cannot harm other people because everyone has that infinite dignity. So I, I certainly, I, I suspect you agree with that ethical commitment and that being theologically rooted as such. But I wonder if such a concept can also get in the way, kind of um, reserving God to such a retracted experience and ethical manifestation as such that it's so centralized in the human being that we, um, that, that it prevents encounters beyond that realm. Hmm. Uh, well, first I, I would be reluctant to question anybody's ethical motivations. So if, if, framing their ethical motivations in the language of the image of God moves people to act uh, like I'll Dianu, I'll take it. Right. I think you'll take it as right. well. Right. Um, and I don't know if this gets to the question you're asking, but uh, I think there's like a divine encounter that occurs in feeding the hungry or bringing justice to those uh, who have not been extended justice. And I think that there's a divine encounter that happens outside of those contexts and, and everything in between. Um, um, I, and I wonder, I, I don't know, I wonder if, and maybe this is where you're going, I'm not, I'm not sure, I wonder if emphasis the focus of god language in the ethical realm uh limits a person's capacity to appreciate what the fullness of the divine encounter could be so let, let me just give a couple of examples so um 
you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a, like you, I'm a student of Yitz Greenberg. And, uh, you know, Yitz Greenberg uh, places the, the life at the center of the, of the human divine project, the advancement of life, the quality of life. Um, and, and yet, you know, in his system, he stops uh, at human beings. Um, he stops at human beings. He and I have had this conversation. Um, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't share that view. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure that uh, I, I might be more Jain than Jewish uh, on this question. It seems to me that, you know, sentience and animation and life uh, is, is significant in all forms, non-human, non-animal. Um, you know, the redwood trees in my backyard, they've been around longer than anyone on this call. And I approach them with great humility and concern. Um, so that's one way of expanding the, the frame of the encounter. Um, the other is maybe, and I don't, I, I don't know about this. Again, I'm, everything I'm saying right now is kind of experimental thinking, you know, coming to you live from Darren's mouth. Uh, I, I'm, I'd love to do a, a, another one of these in a week after I had a time to think about this question. But, <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm a slow processor. But, uh, but another thing I guess I would, I would say that I'm not sure about, and let me, let me preface this by saying, like, First of all, Shmuley is like a hero of mine, and I think a hero of many people in the Jewish and, and non-Jewish world, because for many reasons, but I'll give you a very, one very simple reason, that's because the way my life has, has unfolded, I'm not out there on the street doing the work, and he's doing the work, and every day, I, you know, I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm profoundly inspired and frankly grateful for the, for the work that he does, but I, that's, not how I, that's not how I showed up in the world. And, and there aren't many people that show up that way in the world. And so the question I sometimes ask myself is like, am I, am I doing, like, is that the right way to be? And am I doing something wrong because I'm not out there? And uh, well, maybe, could be, maybe I should be di directing my life's energies to direct action that will change quality of life for real people in real time. That's, that's entirely possible. And I may be falling short and maybe I'll have to come around a few more lifetimes before I get to be a shmooly. That's possible. I'm, I'm, I'm wide open to that possibility. At the same time, and maybe here I'm taking a, maybe a more mystical orientation. You know, my sense is that it's all God, right? It's all God. That which we can see, that, that which we cannot see. Um, which is to say, you know, I'm looking at Gil right now. Gil, you're God. You know, the table that this computer is sitting on is also God. The cloud outside my window is, I mean, the whole thing. And then that which is beyond, that which is beyond my ability to either see or experience or even understand. And so if that's the case, it seems to me that, that we can, that there are an infinite number of ways that we can put more good or justice into the system. Right? Like each person, again, you know, not everybody's going to be out there doing the work in the way that a Rav Shmuley is going to be, but that doesn't mean that their impact will actually not be as significant, but maybe not right now. It may be over the course of generations. I mean, who knows, right? You know, the story of the planting of the tree, the date palm, right? And Choni Agel, and 70 years later, I mean, this is a big piece, a big piece. And who's to say, that, that direct action now is more or less, you know, uh, you know, 
good or true or just or right or an answer to the divine call, then being kind to a child, um, you know, who you bump into one day, you know, in a supermarket and you never quite know what impact that will have on someone and their children and their future generations. So I guess, I guess the last thing I'll just say is simply that, um, I think we should not close ourselves off to opportunities for the divine encounter. And so Shmuley, your question, I guess you were, what you were suggesting was maybe for some people, there's a hyper focus on, on theology playing out only in the social justice realm. And I guess I would say any reduction of the potential to encounter the divine is less than ideal. That's, that's all, you know. Uh, there's a couple of comments here. I want to go back. Anita wrote that she was struck by the comment regarding speaking of God in front of children burning. Yeah, that's a, that's a hard line. Um, you know, uh, you know, Yitz had a, had, has a way of saying it directly. Um, I would simply say that, you know, in the liturgy, in the morning, the blessing before we say the Shema begins, right? Blesses God for creating light and darkness and peace and everything. Now, those of you that know your Bible know that that's a quote from Isaiah, but it's a misquote because that's not what it says. In the text, it says, creator of light and dark. Who makes peace and creates evil. Evil. So, you know, most, most theologians, Jewish theologians, do not talk about the problem of evil. You, you can look through all of Heschel's books. You'll find very little on the problem of evil. Mordechai Kaplan, very little on the problem of evil. You know, uh, Greenberg wrote about the problem of evil. And he, he, and he concluded that the covenant was broken. Now, he has since backed off from that position. But, you know, mo a lot of Jewish theologians stay away from the problem of evil. Um, and I don't know the reason for that, but I have a hunch it's because maybe they realize that people wouldn't like the answer. Yes, this too is God. And, and, and that, that is a, uh, what to do about that? I don't, I don't know what to do about that. But it appears that people are born and people die that good things happen and painful things happen. Um, and I don't need to talk, tell this, anyone on this call about the realities of pain in life. You know, we, we all live through it, right? It's all, I mean, the Buddha was right. I mean, it is all suffering. Question is, is, you know, can we come to terms with that? Uh, and can we, can we live a life of meaning even despite it? So, um, that, that's what I have on that. Let's see a couple more comments. Anyone want to say anything? Uh, the, my name is David. Yourself. Thank you. My name is David. Hi, uh, David. Hi. I think we've alluded to this earlier in our discussion today. We talked about a sense of the transcendence, uh, the um, standing in, in front of the Grand Canyon. You had a quote up there from Art Green about uh, the experience uh, of that. And, and the experience of the transcendence is, is that mystical unified experience that involves, that involves the complete, 
the com our, our complete experience uh, of everything, the, what we might call good, what we might call bad. Uh, it is the integrated um, experience of both or all sides of the Sifarot, uh, which include the, you know, the compassion as well as justice. Uh, and of course, you know, the Sitra Atra, you know, the other side, the duality springs from that. And so I think what I'm saying, what we alluded to is, and, and, the, and the thing you talked about, Darren, earlier, about um, not the peak experience, but the growing plateaus of experience. The more and more we're able to have a sense of the Ein Sof, that never ending, that thing that never ends, that includes everything, infinite intelligence, infinite creativity, infinite possibilities, to the extent we can somehow hang on to that, then that can inform the action that we take in this world, whether we might consider it a kind and compassionate action or perhaps a more difficult one. In other words, we're standing with our child on the, by the street and a rodef comes with a knife and pursues uh, sticking a knife in the neck of our child. Uh, what, kind of what kind of action do we take? Do we take a compassionate action of assisting the rodef, or do we take that knife and turn it back on the rodef and kill it, kill him or her, even though that rodef is made by Selma Elohim? How do we know the answer to that? The more we can figure out the answer to that, I think is calibrated by the more we have a sense of the Ein Sof in our everyday existence and awareness so that we can choose which action in the sphere, in the, in the sphere of Sifarot is the right one to take at that moment. Thank you. Thank you. One more before we wrap. Yeah, I have a, uh, Mr. Irwin. Um, I'm wondering about what this concept, which is a very familiar concept, um, how that, how that um, relates to the concept of God, of, of some obligatory nature of God, a God of ethics, which is beyond your experience. You know, we're talking about your sense of all leading you to being a compassionate person who, uh, in, in, in all aspects of your life. But is there something in the concept of this sort of takes the concept of God saying it's all your subjective experience of God? Is there anything about at least the Jewish or your concept of God that goes beyond that to a sense of obligation um, that, you know, this is what God wants from you? <laughs> you know, um, the prophet, the way the prophets talk about God. Um, and um, so it's not necessarily all your experience of God, your sense of awe, it is God plays a role in the way God wants people to be. Yeah, so I, I would just go back to the, that closing quote from Arthur Green, right? You know, the, the, the transformation, right? Le leads to a, the, the experience of the sacred leads to the transformation, the transformation of a person's life. Let me read the uh, line. The moments when we glimpse it are so rare and powerful 
that they call upon us to transform the rest of our lives in their wake. By the way, uh, his claim is they're, 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 uh, they're rare. You know, Heschel writes, for some people they're rare, for some people they're not, right? Just depends, depends how, much, how much time you spend looking for it or remembering, right? So I, I think rare is in the eye of the beholder. That's maybe Art Green is being humble in that case. But the transformation, so yeah, of course, of course there is an, there is an ethical implication, but, but it's from the inside out. You know, I think of this sometimes that, you know, when, when people read sacred texts, I think often we have a misunderstanding of what a sacred text is. We, we think that if we read the sacred text in a certain way, we'll open a door onto that which is behind it, right? I think that's not unusual. Um, or, or by the way, any book in the self-help section in a bookstore, right? We think that if we read it, suddenly we'll have some kind of insight. But it's the other way around, right? The people that wrote those sacred texts, they had the experience. And then however, you know, in whatever limited way, they wrote the text as a way to try to communicate it to somebody else, right? So the only way you can actually understand the text is if you can see it from their perspective. That's like the story, you know, of Moses and Moses says to God, let me see your face. And God says, no, you can't see my face, but you can see the back of my head, which is, you can see it, you can see what I see, right? You can see the same thing that my eyes see, right? Um, so yes, there is, an, there is an ethical implication in the divine encounter, um, but in a, in a funny way, uh, coming to those ethical implications from the outside in will only have limited effect. Right. So like I, you know, I spent, I don't know, 15 years in the Orthodox Jewish world and I lived a very meticulously halakhic life. Right. Uh, but um, but I wasn't transformed by it. Like I was like, you know, I don't and I think I had plenty shortcomings. I'm sure I still have plenty more shortcomings that I have to work through. But I can tell you the difference between a performative experience of, let's say, orthodoxy, and I'm not speaking for all Orthodox Jews. I'm sure there are many Orthodox Jews that have deeply authentic religious lives. That's not the point. I'm just speaking about myself. I think the kind of performative kind of version of orthodoxy that I participated in, as opposed to the place where I, I don't know, I may or may not be now, the, the, the difference in the quality of the experience is unmistakable. And it's one that I would say informs um, the decisions I make, my, my, my choices, to go back to David's comment about choices, uh, on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. And so, and maybe I'll close with this, it's 2.03. You know, this question of compassion, David, you raised the question of compassion. Um, yeah, that, that, I mean, that's what's left. You know, the, the, the view from this side is that when you say the, the priestly blessing, you know, may God bless you and protect you. May God shine his face on you and give you grace. You know, may God show his countenance to you and give you peace. Now, to me, what I'm about to say might be the most elemental thing. I assume everybody on this call already figured this out 20 years ago. I'm always late to the party. Okay, so, so I'm the purveyor of that blessing. This is the face, right? This is the, and so is that the face? And so is that the face? And so, right? That's, okay, so that's only, that's a realization one can only come to when one realizes one is also God. And I don't mean that in a like, uh, look at me, I'm a bit, no, like either it's all God or it's not all God. And this too seems to be part of that. So yeah, that, 
So, so there are very serious ethical implications, Erwin, that, that come with that realization. And uh, I would just say, as someone who in parts of my life uh, wasn't always especially kind or nice, that the movement towards kindness is unmistakable. And it's not to say that I'm an exemplar. I'm not an exemplar, but I know the difference between, between that version and this version. Um, and so work for me, you know, work for me. All right. We're over time. I'm thankful for the invitation. Okay. It's so nice to see everybody's Thank face. you so much, uh, Rep. Darren. This is so awesome for all of us to connect with you and your scholarship and your experience. And this topic was just so, was so rich. And uh, we look forward to many more opportunities to continue learning from you. And wish you bracha at Hamakom, your continued uh, work up there. Friends, we have Thank more you. going on at VBM than ever before. So tap in. We have multiple events every day you can join us for. Look forward to learning with you on a daily basis when you're free. Have a great day. Thank you, Darren.